Chris Hedges, nice to have you with us today. Thank you. For those of you who may not be familiar with Chris Hedges, he's one of America's most insightful cultural critics and authors, and for 20 years was a foreign correspondent in Central America, the Middle East, Africa, and the Balkans, for the New York Times for 15 years, Christian Science Monitor, NPR. And while at the Times, Chris and the team received the Pulitzer Prize for his reportage on global terrorism. Chris's new book is The World As It Is, Dispatches, on the Myth of Human Progress. It's a collection of his most insightful and timeless essays. Now, Chris, I'm going to ask you just a few questions and let you roll with it, all right? Sure. Uh, today, when I watch the, both the left and the right, I don't care whether it's Rachel Maddow or Keith Oberman or any of the others, uh, Chris O'Donnell, uh, on the left or on the right, I do not really see progressives. I don't see the people who have the capacity to challenge the existing dogmas and come up with positive solutions. Instead, I see either people of a liberal or people of a conservative perspective. Why are progressives from either the left or right absent from the national debate on just about everything, whether it's health care, the environment, these issues? That's the first issue. And the second issue is, since you have been in the war zone, since you have seen up close and have been the most articulate author I've read about the the human toll on the human psyche of what happens when you're face-to-face with death, your, your piece on what it means to be in that segment where you put the body pieces in a bag when they've been blown to shreds, and you can't even tell that it's a human body, it's just a mound of flesh, and those images sear into the consciousness, then why is it that our military adventures, we have no major anti-war protest of people. We don't have the senior citizens protesting anything. We don't have the youth protesting. Some hippies and some real activists do, but they are a tiny infinitesimal minority, and rare is that as spotlighted. So talk about what happened to our senior citizens. What happened to the professional class, the upper middle class, the wealthy class? Why are they not engaged in protesting these efforts to get us out of these, which is draining us of not only our wealth, but also human lives, suffering, and those of the countries we're in. Those are the two issues. Would you take those on, please? Well, let's start with the, the issue you raise about figures like Rachel Maddow and Lawrence O'Donnell and others. Um, these people are courtiers. Uh, they function the way courtiers did in the old courts of Versailles or the Forbidden City. Uh, they react to the agenda of the day and give it their own peculiar twist of gossip or uh, but, but there is a uh, allow the corporate mainstream to set the agenda so for instance if uh, Fox News is talking about Anthony Weiner then you can be sure that Lawrence O'Donnell and Rachel Maddow and others are talking about uh, Anthony Weiner uh, they have a different take on it uh, the way courtiers often do. Uh, but it, it is just as uh, diversionary, uh, just as trivial, just as absurd as the gossip about Anthony Weiner that comes uh, from the right. Uh, and let's not forget that these people are highly paid celebrities. They're not journalists. They're paid to entertain. Uh, they're paid to do this. Uh, even figures like Keith Oberman, uh, who I noticed when he left, uh, it said that he had a salary of $5 million a year. 
I believe that's right. Uh, so uh, all of these people are entertainers, uh, and they entertain us around the salacious garbage uh, that dominates the airwaves and has utterly corrupted news. Of course, this isn't news at all, but it's presented as news. Uh, so the real issues of uh, climate change, of the reconfiguration of America into a neo-feudalistic society where the working and increasingly the middle class are being abandoned, uh, the rise of the oligarchic state, the destruction of civil liberties, the flagrant corruption, uh, not only in terms of the money that disappeared in Iraq, but on Wall Street itself, which is dominated at this point by a criminal class. And we see in the front page of the New York Times today that Obama's Czar uh, on, on regulations is sort of reaching out to see what more they can do to gut any kind of control of this uh, speculative uh, gamble that it, it once again uh, threatens to implode not only the American but the global economy as well. So uh, I, I am just as frustrated. I mean, I don't own a TV, so I don't have to see these people very much. Uh, but I'm just as frustrated with the, with the faux progressives, the faux liberals who dominate the airwaves as you are, because, of course, they don't discuss anything real. They discuss precisely what the corporate mandarins want to be discussed, albeit from a purportedly progressive or liberal viewpoint. Uh, but they are, they are reactive uh, in that sense, uh, and they are about entertainment. Uh, in terms of... Uh, the other question, the passivity, um, we have really effectively been frightened by the state, uh, and this has paralyzed us. Um, we are now about to enter uh, a presidential, one of these interminable presidential election cycles, campaign cycles, where the, you can be sure that is the only thing the Democratic Party will offer uh, us, and that is fear fear of Mitt Romney, fear of Michelle Bachman, or whatever monstrosity the Republicans cough up. But I think at a certain point we have to step back and say that our collaboration with the Democratic Party has not worked. Uh, it is true that the Republican Party is cruder, more rapacious, more heartless, uh, more craven in their service to corporate interests. Uh, but the Democrats, and Obama epitomizes this, are utterly passive in the face of corporate power. They will not uh, throw up any impediments to uh, the corporate disfigurement of America. And uh, we forgot, as Karl Popper, the great Viennese philosopher, pointed out, that it's not our job to ask, uh, you know, the question, uh, how do we get good people to rule? That that's the wrong question. The question is, how do we stop the power elite? from doing as much damage as possible. And having lived in countries like France, I can tell you that that is by making the power elite frightened. And that comes through movements. It comes through standing fast around moral imperatives, which unfortunately we have not done, uh, and therefore have been unable to halt this inexorable slide to uh, an America where there are uh, a rapacious elite pulling down $900,000 an hour and one in six American workers without a job. I appreciate those insights, Chris. This is coming from Nicholas uh, Confessori uh, from A Common Dreams. It says, quote, a few weeks before announcing his reelection campaign, 
President Obama convened two dozen Wall Street executives, many of them longtime donors, to the White House's Blue Room. The guests were asked for their thoughts on how to speed the recovery. Then the president opened the floor for over an hour on hot issues like hedge fund regulation and the deficit. Mr. Obama, who enraged many financial industry executives a year and a half ago by labeling them, quote, fat cats and criticizing their bonuses, followed up the meeting with phone calls to those who could not attend. The event was organized by the Democratic National Committee, kicking off an aggressive push by Mr. Obama to win back the allegiance of these very campaign sources. Here's my question. These are the very people who use the deregulation of the Glass-Steagall Act to engage in casino capitalism, derivative positions, creating a new bubble in, um, in commodities. In fact, one of the largest bubbles right now that the average American is not aware is happening is when hedge funds are buying up enormous tracts of land in Africa, the richest soul remaining in Africa, so that they can then control what is grown in the price of those commodities and water rights for the future. In other words, they are already looking to create a commodities bubble. When people can't afford food, they will be able to get enormously wealthy, even beyond their own wealth now, by selling people who need the food because they own the land. The Chinese are doing it in South America. They're doing it also. The Chinese are also doing it, by the way, in, in Africa. So the last remaining green places in Africa are being bought up by hedge funds, not because they're going to eat any of the food, not because this food even will be brought into the American marketplace, but it's the world marketplace, and people have to eat, so they'll say, here's what you have to pay, and if you can't pay it, starve, but we're thinking you'll find money to pay for this. Your government will pay for it. It's all about greed. Those are the very people Obama's sitting with. Those are the people that the Federal Reserve gave money to, 22,000 transactions in secret, $3.2 trillion, and we were kept in the dark about that. Why can't Obama invite you, Gerald Solante, Rubini, Stiglitz, or any of the other people who have some knowledge about how we could help the American consumer Main Street instead of once again saying, Wall Street, if you give me more money, I'll see that no one touches your capacity to make even more for yourselves. Your thoughts? Because Obama uh, understands where the centers of power are. And uh, it, it is the financial class that you just delineated. And he knows that if he wants to uh, retain a position within the White House, he must serve those centers of power. And if he does not, he's finished. Uh, we we don't live in a democratic state. The interests, the needs, the rights of the citizenry are irrelevant. They don't matter. Uh, and we have just seen that over and over and over. Uh, every piece of legislation that is rammed through the Congress mocks the very phrase consent of the governed. Uh, the Obamacare health plan turns out to be the equivalent of the bank bailout bill for the pharmaceutical and insurance industries, $400 billion in subsidies, and co-payments and premiums are being jacked up enormously. My own just jumped $400 a month to $2,000 a month. Uh, when you have a third of the country uh, that is living on under $40,000 a year, they can't make these payments. And so uh, there are an increasing number of people uh, who are literally dying 
uh, 45000 a year because they can't get proper medical care. Uh, and yet the federal government, which is the only institution large enough to protect us from the predatory practices of corporations, uh, serves the interests of those corporations. And the screws are just being turned tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter. And as my friend Father Daniel Berrigan says, these corporations know only one word, and it's more. Uh, they know have no sense of limits. Uh, they will push and push and push. And in essence, they're, they're cannibalizing the country uh, along with the ecosystem that sustains human existence. Everything for them is a commodity that they exploit until exhaustion or collapse. Uh, and in that sense, Karl Marx was right. Unfettered, unleashed capitalism is, at its core, a revolutionary force. Chris Hedges is my guest. Many of the stations will be saying goodbye to us. You can continue to listen for the next seven minutes to this discussion by going to ProgressiveRadioNetwork.com or GaryNall.com. We will continue as other stations have to say goodbye. Chris, let's get into the idea of what happened to the Democratic Party, what happened to the conservative or, or Republican Party going from its ideals to where it is today under Clinton, Obama, and Bush, and Reagan. What happened? Well, it, it was a long process, and one I tried to chronicle in my book, Death of the Liberal Class, and I really start at World War One as, as the kind of uh, moment on which progressive popular movements were broken uh, through the creation of the largest system of or most effective system of mass propaganda in human history known as the Committee for Public Information or the Creel Commission that not only saturated the country with pro-war propaganda uh, as well as propaganda against progressive groups that defied World War One but more importantly employed the techniques of crowd psychology or mass psychology pioneered by figures like Le Bon, Trotter, and Sigmund Freud. Uh, and we've never recovered from that. Uh, the, the, the instant World War I ended, all of these people migrated to Madison Avenue to begin to work not only for corporations but for the government. Remember, for instance, in the 1954 CIA-orchestrated Arbenz coup in Guatemala, Edward Bernays' public relations firm was hired to create the propaganda to do the war. Uh, you know, the, the whole buildup over weapons of mass destruction on the war in Iraq was just a replay of that, of Bernays' playbook. Um, and uh, there was an assault, a destruction of these popular movements because the dreaded Hun was instantly replaced with the dreaded Red. So you had the old CIO, the Wobblies, all of these uh, institutions were destroyed, these populist radical institutions, of course the Communist Party, uh, and then, in essence, the liberal class disemboweled itself in that constant search for people who were soft on communism. That's how figures like Henry Wallace, Roosevelt's vice president, who ran for president in 1948, were discredited. And uh, we, in essence, were left without any, uh, uh, any movements that would stand in the way of, uh, of the rise of the corporate state. Uh, it, it was sort of somehow assumed that uh, capitalism, unfettered capitalism, was good, was a kind of 
uh, absolute good because it it uh, it was it defied the ideology of communism, uh, and uh, we shifted in the early 1970s, as the Harvard historian Charles Mayer points out, as we destroyed our manufacturing base from an empire of production to an empire of consumption. We began using credit. Uh, to maintain both an empire and a level of consumption we could no longer afford. Now we've reached a point where that credit is no longer available, where these cheap manufactured goods uh, and cheap fossil fuels are no longer cheap, uh, and we are shifting from an age of amusement from Huxley's, uh, you know, the world state to Orwell's Oceana, uh, much more draconian and brutal forms of control. Uh, and that's the process that we've undergone. And unfortunately, the uh, dismemberment of radical movements and the disemboweling of liberal groups, whether it's the press, whether it's labor, uh, whether it's culture, uh, public education, and of course the Democratic Party, have left us without institutional mechanisms to protect ourselves. I appreciate that insight. I'm going to uh, ask you to answer this, but I first want to set up um, set up the image. I believe at some point the American public has to understand the consequences of the choices made for them or that they participate in uh, as an associated uh, person. In other words, as a passive spectator to the choices of for example, military conflict. What would happen? This is purely a hypothetical situation, uh, an allegorical one. If each time we saw Sean Hannity or anyone on television saying, support our brave troops in this necessary war against terror, as they're talking, we then show the consequences in each of the areas where we have conflict to the average citizen, to the children, to those children who are affected by depleted uranium, or possibly because there's no clean water and they have maybe dysentery, or to the people who've had legs blown off by personnel uh, landmines. Then body bags, actually showing someone scooping up the parts of a body that have been blown away in one of these improvised uh, explosive devices of an American soldier, watching them wreathe in pain, much as we did in the Vietnam War, when we saw what actually was happening in the different provinces from the Viet Cong and in that conflict. And then, then have a third segment showing, as I saw and as I filmed, down in just the woods around Cape Canaveral, right beside a suburban area, hundreds of vets who were now living in little tiny pup tents, sometimes the pup tents so small their body couldn't fit in it. When I got there with a the camera, and it was 10 o'clock in the morning, it was 95 degrees, and the mosquitoes were everywhere. The first guy I found, first there was a coral poisonous snake about seven feet away from the guy, a little snake. Secondly, the guy's feet was outside of the tent, and mosquitoes were all over him. It looked like someone just taken a, a match and burned him a thousand times on the legs. And this was a guy who had a little rack of beans out in the heat, and he had a little burner. His campsite was neat, but he was about 6'3", in his tent he couldn't fit in. This guy, when I started to talk with him, and he sat up, I noticed that there was a blood stain. I said, you, you've got some blood on your chest. And so he uh, pulled up his shirt, and he had stents. 
And he said, well, I just had two stents from a heart put in there two weeks ago. And I said, well, friend, it's septic. You have a massive infection. He said, well, I don't have the medicine. I don't have the money. So he handed me a prescription. Prescription for, was for $71, but he didn't have $71. So he didn't have the medicine, so therefore he couldn't affect his infection. Then I said, well, why don't you just go to an emergency room? He says, well, it doesn't work that way down here. He says, when I was walking to the hospital the other day, I couldn't make it. I can't walk very far, and it's four miles. So I stopped to sit down to get my breath, and a policeman came by and gave me a ticket for loitering. It was $40. I can't afford the $40. A month from now, they'll give me another ticket. Then they'll come and arrest me and put me in jail. And he said, uh, there are thousands of homeless vets in jail because they got tickets like this. Then he showed me and introduced me to another vet about 20 feet away who got a ticket for holding up a little sign by the road that says, I'm a homeless vet, can you help? That was a $30 ticket. And again, I said, well, why would you get that? He said, because vets here are harassed. So I said, so you've, you've got an infection <clears throat> that can kill you. You've got a prescription, but you can't fill it. And he's, that's correct. And he says, none of us down here have any money. So I said, well, what do you do each day? He says, well, we all walk early in the morning at 3 o'clock to the employment center. But the moment you sign up, you have to tell them if you're a vet. If you're a vet, you have to go to the back of the line because nobody wants to hire a vet. And so we walk up here, we sign up, we don't get picked, we walk back. It's six hours. Once a day we can walk to another place and get a free meal. And he said, and that's it. So then I helped him out. I bought him his medicines, and I, I, I did what I could to help him. I got him some food brought in, and, and, and I did what I could. I can't help them all, but the ones I could help personally, I did. And there was one woman, her name is Red, and... Uh, and, and she was helping these others, and she had been a vet, and she went through post-traumatic stress disorder. She lost her family because of her erratic behavior. She ended up homeless on the street. And the vets hang together simply because uh, they at least have the experience of survival. So then I said, when you were going to war, did you see the people promoting going to war on television? She said, yes. I said, Glenn Beck and all these others. It says, Glenn Beck, Sean Hannity, Bill O'Reilly, uh, Laura Ingram, uh, Laura Schlesinger, uh, Michael Savage, have any of these people come down here to help you in your hour of need? And she just laughed and she said, are you kidding? No one comes here to help us. I said, how many of you are there? She said, in this area of Florida, living without electricity, food, water, or help, 16,000 living in the woods. I said, you're kidding me. She said, well, come with me. So over the next several days, all day, from morning till night, I traveled into the woods and met all these vets. Some were alcoholic, some were not. But they were all abandoned. We then have located about 800,000 homeless vets. So here's my larger question. When I went into the people's, knocked on the doors, and I filmed this, by the way, and you, you'll see this in this Homeless Inc. documentary that you're in also. I asked people, I said, are you aware you've got a lot of homeless people? Oh, yeah, we're aware of them. Have you tried to help them? Why should I help them? It's not my problem. But these are people that served your country. Whether you believe or don't believe in the war, they're still human beings. They're spiritual beings. Not my problem. Let the government. 
VA got to help him. I said, but no one's helping him. Well, it's not my problem. Everywhere I went, I didn't find a single human being in any of the homes in the neighborhoods where these vets walked and did not commit crimes. I asked the police, are there any crimes committed by these vets in the neighborhoods? They said no. I asked one police officer, then why would you give a person that doesn't have a nickel in their pocket, that is walking with two stints in their chest, four miles in one direction, to see if he can get some work? He shouldn't be working at all. He should be in a hospital. Why would you give this guy a $40 ticket for taking a break and sitting on a public bench? Because if you or I sat on that bench, we wouldn't get a ticket. He said, well, it's, it's one of the rules. And I'm thinking, my God, we have a police state here. So I was, I was very concerned about we becoming a fascist state, that the liberal class is in its own arrogance and in conceit and hubris has refused to acknowledge the loss of our rights, the American public being indifferent to the suffering of others except themselves, the idea that we have all these people out there who've got serious problems, no one's helping them, no one's paying attention, not the government, not the people promoting the war. They are only giving us one half. And what if we could see on a split screen the people promoting war, the warmongers, showing the people that actually make them profit from the war, giving people a war tax bill each day, then showing the human toll of the war at home and elsewhere. I realize that's a long overview and a big picture, but I needed to get that out and take your time. We're going into the next program. The host of the next program has said it's okay. They find this uh, conversation too important to stop. So I want you, Chris, now uninterrupted to take your time and give us your perspective on this, please. Well, I would argue that the real images of war have never been conveyed adequately to the American public, even during the Vietnam War. Uh, that however horrific these images are, they're always sanitized uh, because if people had to see what these weapons do to human bodies and to children, uh, it would be so repugnant uh, that it would be impossible to support war as an enterprise. Uh, I, I covered, I was in Sarajevo during the war, during the constant bombardment by Serbian gunners, 2,000 shells a day, and these were massive explosive devices, 155 howitzers, 90-millimeter tank rounds, Katusha rockets, and they, the Serb gunners would target the, uh, the water outlets because there was no running water. There were only a few places within the city set up by the UN where crowds would gather to get water. They would target these places, and mothers with children, uh, and these shells would come in, and the, the dismemberment uh, was horrific. And uh, the difference between standing at one of those spots and the images that were conveyed, eventually conveyed to the out, outside world, as, as horrifying as they were, bore no uh, relation. I mean, uh, you know, people's guts uh, spilling out or their legs blown off. Uh, things were carefully cropped and edited, and not only that, but you only saw 30, 40 seconds of it. Uh, a person who has their legs blown off, uh, and I've seen it, can, actually takes about six hours to die. Now, there is the technological capacity, of course, to set it up in real time and show us these deaths or show us what 
these bits of iron fragments that are spewed out from a thousand pound iron fragmentation bombs or hellfire missiles that when they explode suck the oxygen out of the air uh... we could show you the bodies of children we could show you this um, uh... but the masters of war and their corporate lackeys remember we have one of the largest corporations that controls media outlets is general electric which is also uh, a huge uh, supplier for the war industry um, they're never going to show you these images uh, because uh, it would compete or uh, challenge that mythic narrative of war of glory honor heroism words that after 30 seconds in combat become uh, obscene and uh, uh, the, the masters of war, and this is true throughout human history, work very, very hard, hard to, to hide the reality of war and replace it with a narrative about war that is utterly fictitious. And this, of course, is part of the part of the trauma that combat veterans face when they come back, that they understand the lie, the lie that has been propagated by their religious institutions, by... Uh, schools, government, the entertainment industry. And so the crisis they face is not simply a crisis where they must struggle with trauma, but it's also a crisis, an existential crisis, uh, because nobody really wants to hear. People prefer to lap up the myth, uh, which is about our collective self-glorification, collective self-empowerment. And I think that's always the struggle for those of us who return from from war zones is that it, it's impossible finally to compete against that myth. That myth wins, and we're rendered silent. My final question for you today, and I thank the program that we're in right now for allowing us to extend this. Uh, thank you for that. Chris Hedges, <clears throat> go back to the issue I asked earlier. Why do you believe our senior citizens, our professional class of doctors, engineers, architects, sociologists, psychiatrists, academics, our working middle class, our upper middle class, and the wealthy class are virtually, with our youth, disengaged from anything that is meaningful to our future in a proactive way? Well, I think it's a combination of factors. I think fear, which I mentioned before, is big. I think we have, they have effectively made us, cowed us through fear. Uh, the kind of virtual hallucinations that preoccupy, uh, especially kids. Um, as my friend Ralph Nader said, the only thing they haven't figured out how to do is put a chip in your brain. Uh, this is really a conspiracy against reflection and thought, uh, because real thought requires uh, long spans of silence and time and contemplation. Uh, it's, you know, that old line from Auden, the, the lights must never go out, the music must always play, and all the conventions conspire to make this furniture assume the fort of home, least we should see where we are, lost in a haunted wood, children afraid of the night who've never been happy or good. Uh, the um, destruction of the working class, uh, the, the middle class, and, and self-identified liberals within the society ignored the assault on working men and women, and you just 
spoke when you spoke about that tent city as a window into it, but this is just happening all over the country. I've just returned from Pine Ridge, South Dakota, the poorest county in the United States, 80% unemployment. There are massive pockets now, and I know you've been to Camden as well, where which are rendered invisible uh, so that we can be uh, entranced with the latest celebrity meltdown, whether it's Charlie Sheen or... Uh, Wiener, who I mentioned before. I mean, it's, it's, every week it's somebody new. Uh, and, uh, as this is happening, we are being steadily stripped of power, economic and political power. Uh, and I think we don't react because the culture is awash in lies, because the state has made us effectively afraid, uh, and because we destroyed the movements that once gave a voice to the popular aspirations of ordinary men and women. Let us hope that we regain some sense of our moral perspective. Thank you very much, Chris Hedges. Chris Hedges is the author of The World As It Is, Dispatches on the Myth of Human Progress. We look forward to our next conversation, Chris. Thank you, Gary.